You're listening to Josie Long and Robin Ince's Utter Shambles, Series 2, brought to you by Comedy Central, featuring Stuart Lee. <laughs> so why wouldn't that, you... That could get... Because we were kind of, we might as well start here. Yeah. Which right, is um, why you don't need to wear those. We didn't last no, time. Right. Yeah, I know, there's no sorry. reason. I got the, um, Hang on, let me open that. Why would you, you, you often uh, disparaging the fact that I use Twitter and other such things. Is this on air now? Yeah, might oh, as well right, be. Okay. Some of the other bits might be as well. We'll edit anything else. <laughs> oh, no, don't mention it. No, we won't. No. We won't. We'll start here. Start from here. Because what I normally <laughs> do is just have the mics on all the time. And yeah. then it starts, for you. so you just hear people yeah. clattering Well, in. I wouldn't have complained about No, that's right. <laughs> the, um, so you're very excited about the new kind of, uh, the, the world of gigs, which is just in any old room, they're free, anyone can come, and there's not enough furniture. Why do you think the circuit's <laughs> become so exciting? Um, the, well, what I was saying is I've, I've I've been out of the loop for about nine months because I did this tour and then and, and, I'm, and I'm just trying to get do loads and loads of London comedy circuit gigs again to work up new material and and earn money and um, I just kind of for, I kind of forgot you can't you can't just accept any of them because I, I, I you know you, you kind of forget that sometimes you get to a place and there isn't a stage or lights or a PA or anyone taking any money. Or enough chairs for the amount of people that might arrive, and um, I remember when, when when we started doing student gigs. When when I was with Avalon in the early nineties, they tried to set up a student comedy network. Uh, no one had thought before to send comedy to students, and uh, I mean, we'd get to places where they didn't really want to turn off the fruit machines and the Space Invaders, and you were in like the, just supposed to go on in the corner of a bar with no stage. And in the end, Rob Asset, the promoter, sent out a little drawing of a stick man on a stage with a light shining towards him, holding a microphone to sort of show them what, what, what I'd like to say that when I was doing those gigs in 2005, they still were... Yeah, they, well, they still let it slip. No, they, they yeah. probably weren't, because this is what I find interesting about stand-up. Well, one of the things, obviously, is that there's a presumption that it doesn't really matter about the environment from certain things. I mean, I think I did one with you years and years ago where the person in the bar, because the sports screen is still on as well, yeah. and went, um, well, no, it's going to be all right because the people who want to watch sport will watch the sport and yeah. the people who want to watch the comedy will watch the comedy. And you go, yeah. but it's in the same room. Yeah. There's loud commentary of football in the middle of some well-set-up joke. There's a sudden, Way! oh! Yeah. Yeah. But they go, yeah, but if you're a comedian, you can play in that. And yet there's no other environment. You wouldn't go, no. you wouldn't, wouldn't go and see a classic gig and they go well there's also we, we've got uh, the, the rich kids are playing <laughs> yeah. over there and but the people who want to watch the rich kids will watch the rich kids and well, the they, people who want to watch Vivaldi will watch Vivaldi it'll be fine I did one t- once take a maths exam last year where there was a f- boxing ring set up in the mm. corner of the room I just wanted to say it. Josie Long Foxy Boxing. I think my agent has given me the wrong idea of this. Well the reason why you would have done it 15 years after us and there was still no the, 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 the sort of knowledge had not been handed on is because the student ends officers change every two or three mm-hmm. years and they don't kind of then they start from scratch but it's as it's sometimes it's as if actually some of them were quite good yeah to, um, no, some quite good. sometimes it's as if no one's ever been to anything yeah. although actually I, in Adelaide I was in Adelaide in 2000 and Ken Stringfellow from the Posies was touring Australia do you remember the Posies mm. right they were quite a big like 90s alternative power pop band and Ken Stringfellow is now in REM I think he was in REM at the time actually he's one of the blokes in REM that they never turned the light on who <laughs> uh, stand at the back you know doing, and um, anyway he was he was touring Australia with a band at Adelaide University and we got there with my, my then girlfriend who was a theatre promoter and um, it just kind of no one had turned MTV off the MTV was still playing in the room like round the L you know round the side of it it wasn't lit at all and Joe sort of just went to the bar staff 
has anyone thought about turning that off? And they went, oh, oh yeah. And then went and did that. But it was kind of, I thought, this is really weird, because I'd seen him at Glastonbury with R.E.M., where, presumably, if you do, it must be really <laughs> strange doing that level of stuff. I'd love it if and Michael Lewis up until 1998, <laughs> just that big telly show in the rugby, and then yeah. someone went, listen, Michael, you want me to turn those off? Well, I suppose <laughs> yeah. I'll do that. But it was kind of like, sometimes it's like, you think, have you ever been to anything? <laughs> have you ever seen anything, ever? Not in Adelaide. Well, come on. No, but it is a bit like people have never, it's like they haven't given any thought about what the actual, what it's like to be on in a place, you know? Yeah. Sorry, that's unfair again, why is that with stand-up, though? Why, why is it in particular? Cause I don't, because I don't it. I'm glad you said, you know, Ken, Ken Stringfellow, maybe, maybe it is with lots of other things. Maybe there's just a certain level where you turn up and they think, well, they're not going to be any good because even though they make a living from it, I haven't actually heard of them. Yeah. So it would be better to put them under greater pressure. Yeah. Well, no, but I think there's a lot of myths about stand-up to do with you're supposed to be a stand-up, you should be able to play every crowd. Yeah. You're supposed to be a stand-up, uh, you should want to have heckling, you should want to have this, yeah. that, the other, you know. Actually, the last in the last tour, like I suppose because it's reasonable for me to now assume that people have come along to see me and know what they might be getting, the last tour story, it was... The story was like a sort of low status thing about me failing in various ways and there were lots of stories that I had to kind of get through and it worked you know 99% of the time because people had sort of come to see me so they listened but in Salford in the afternoon a guy just sort of heckled from the off in a really incomprehensible way and I'd sort of deal with it and, then, and after about 20 minutes I went look I could keep on dealing with you but the problem is for this story to work I'm supposed to be a kind of a low status character and it doesn't really work if I've if I'm dealing with you aggressively in an amusing way and putting you down. And I kind of stepped out of it and explained it to the audience. Then there were various bits, I'd kind of get to them and I'd go, the next bit, what was supposed to happen was this, but I can't do that because there's, you know, the fourth wall's been broken about what I can do, so I'll just tell you what it would have been like and then I'll move on to the next bit. I had to kind of do like a precy of the show because yeah. I couldn't perform another. And, it, and I actually said to them, this wasn't written as a club set in which I have to deal with a drunk heckler for an hour. I could do that. But it's not, mm. not this show. You know, it's so a different skill entirely. Yeah. But there is, a, I, I think that, as you, I remember seeing Jerry Sadovitz years ago. I mean, twenty years ago, I was still a student, and there were some people who'd come to see him. And about once a minute, I think it was every minute, uh, these five men just went fuck off. Yeah. Right, and then Jerry Sadovitz did something about them, and and he got a big laugh for uh, from the audience. And then after another minute, they go fuck off. Like this just kept going all the way through until eventually I got quite cross with uh, I went can you just stop doing it you're ruining the gig and like you've been doing this now for half an hour so there's nothing else he can do because he's made the audience laugh and now you're just <laughs> and uh, and then afterwards I nearly end up in a fight situation which is not I'm not very good at that kind of mm. thing as you can tell from my demeanour unfortunately my six foot four inch friend Jim, o Jim Connor suddenly turned up and he's uh, but and these guys go, no, but it proves whether he's a good comic because we do this down the comedy store as well. Yeah, yeah. No, but it doesn't. It, it proves if, if there's a certain ability they've got to think quickly when they've dealt with it for the first 20 minutes. Yeah. But after that 20 <laughs> minutes, the, you're not proving, you're merely proving whether a man can tell you in a more witty way to fuck off back. So that level of, I don't really understand where that, that comes from. Yeah, it was strange mm. when you used to do to do shooting and no one had no one had even really thought I mean I remember another one there was Simon in Br Munnery in Bristol where the, the we were supposed to do it sort of next to the DJ booth using the DJ's mic and the lead was about two foot long right so you had to the only way you could do it 
was to stand at an angle leaning <laughs> towards the DJ booth like like you had a bad back and do it because like no thought had gone into it at all ah well but why uh, going back to that other thing we're talking about which is why do you do you not belong to any of these kind of uh, you know things where you can send out messages about what you're doing or what you're thinking because it will ruin the enigma of Stuart Lee if they find out the truth about you well um, I, I, I sort of think that uh, I think that a, a lot of what I talk about on stage is sort of fi- semi-fictionalised version of my life right and and uh, things that are exaggerated or downplayed or are weirdly true and I don't think it would help in any way to be accessible as a person for those um, also uh Look, I looked on Twitter for the first time about two weeks ago, having suspected what it might be like, um, and I did it at the behest of various people I'm working with who told me that it's really great for, you know, transmitting information and and you get real news on it that isn't covered and all sorts of things like that. And all those things appeared to be true. But what was also true was that over a five-day period, my whereabouts on a 90-minute basis were basically updated to mm. the point where I felt quite freaked out by it. Um, even when I was in a uh, in a cafe in Hampstead with my son, two different people in the in the cafe had been talking about the things he was up to, that Stuart Lee's son was up to on Twitter. He's a three-year-old boy. Mm. But what you um, don't realise is your son has a Twitter account. <laughs> no, he probably <laughs> so does. No, just yeah, that reply. I mean, it's just also then some someone had sat behind us on a train to Brighton behind me and my wife twittering about what we were like. And um, the thing with a journalist is that you can say something's off the record, and also. The press don't print photos of your kids, but because Twitter is like the public, that you know, good. One of the the pros and cons of it are finely balanced, I should imagine. But I, I wouldn't want to enter into it. Also, it gives you another place where you look things up and see people slagging you off, or attributing motives to you that you didn't have, mm. or misquoting you, and it would be another place that I'd feel obliged to try and deal with that and I've already disconnected myself from loads of mm. internet accounts so I don't do that I mean also I think it's it's re- probably really interesting for people to offer their immediate feedback on what they thought something was like you know and if I was on Twitter there's all sorts of bands and whatever that I'd look up about but I don't know if it's necessarily useful for the artist to be aware of that because I think you sometimes have to press on blindly through something that appears to have no merit and come out the other side and often the public can't see where it might be going and they would put you off doing it yeah you know? see I like it just that's because that's called suddenly my you career go, <laughs> 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 yeah yeah, yeah. had a nice um, 140 yes to that sorry no I, I just I, I, I have to I, I agree with all those downfalls and the fact that if you're not on it then you're not aware of the fact that every everyone is that, though I think that's actually I think you're being overly arrogant I think you just happened to hit a weekend where everyone, you were the main uh, kind of tweeting theme but normally <laughs> no one cares about where you are you're addressed or, as a lobster. or the number of pieces of Luke's jigsaw on a coffee table yeah. <laughs> no. but the um, but the, yeah that there is that kind of the, the possibility of accidentally finding out the amount of loathing but on the other side you can also go oh that was nice I had a brief hundred 140 character back and forth conversation with the Vaselines. So that's you. the other yes. thing that you can yeah, just yeah. go, oh, it's nice to. Well, how come the Vaselines haven't got more followers than me? They're the Vaselines. Yeah. The only problem with it is, again, the internet and Twitter and stuff, whereby you have to be. You can't make it. You, 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 you can't speak freely. You know, when, when I was last recognisable in the mid 90s, if a person spoke to you or sent you a postcard or whatever, you could reply to it at length about the things they talked about or if they spoke to you in the street and said this has happened you could even 
vouchsafe a piece of personal information knowing that there'd be nowhere for it mm. to go. Whereas now you have to be on your guard all the time because um, even an email that you thought was about booking a gig or doing a piece of work might turn up on someone's blog. And um, and uh, if it, you know, so, sometimes stuff people go, oh, I hear this is happening. And I think, how the hell do you know that's happening? And then I realise it's because I trace it back and it's because someone asked me something when I was selling my CDs after the gig and I told them, think, thinking I was just talking to a person. Mm -hmm but forgetting that you're now talking to a funnel which feeds into the internet, which distributes information to anyone who wants to look your name up. And um, But I so, think people would always still have talked about people that they idolised. Yeah, but they didn't have the, but they didn't have the means by which to, to distribute anything immediately. You know, you have to be really careful about what you say. Nothing you have to be careful about is if an act says to you, did you, what did you think of my act, right? <laughs> 15 years ago, you could just say something, right? Something that, say, in the, there's a Philip Larkin poem where he says, he talks about words at once not untrue and not unkind. You could find something polite to say. Now you have to be really careful because that gets used as, as a quote, right? And then every single poster's got a quote on you where, where you've you've tried to, and you, it's obvious sometimes there are things you've sort of tried to just find something yeah. to say, you know. Or the quotes will be like, well done, uh, mate. I know, yeah. So it's sort of, or, or things get t tweeted out and blogged out, and, um, and uh, it, you know, and I think it's also to do with being at the level we're at, right, where you're, it wouldn't occur to you to employ a driver full time like Al Murray does, you know. It wouldn't occur to you to to only go to places where only celebrities go. But then, but you're but you are sort of one, one thing Frank Skinner does really well, for example, is he's able to say sort of offensive things because he makes the audience feel like they're his friends just chatting mm -hmm. to him, you know. And that's what we do with our friends. Whereas there's other stuff you you wouldn't say it if the person behind you sort of leaning in. You know, it's really weird. Well, you were saying the other day about when you were uh, a while back when you lost the BAFTA recently, uh, and that's how I look at it now. Uh, but you did something. You did, you did a kind of joke afterwards at the after show, which you then went, "Oh no!" Well, I did a joke. I, yeah, I pretended to be very annoyed about losing because lots of people kept coming up to me and saying, "Oh, I don't understand why you didn't win that," you know. And I was going, "Yeah." Doesn't seem right, does it? And then I, I saw, <laughs> and then Charlie Brooker said he thought, oh, I thought you should have won, you know. So I, I went too far with it and asked him what he thought I could do about it, and he said, well, there was a, there is a, um, you know, you can find out who the committee were, and I went, I might, I might write to them, you know. <laughs> I can't understand it. Give it to Armstrong and Miller. It seems insane. And then I went, and then I went. I mean, for fuck's sake! And I just walked off. And then afterwards, <laughs> people said that isn't very funny because there are people who would do that. So you've misunderstood. In that's fact. why it is funny. I know, I suppose so, yeah. But anyway. But that's the danger if you do it entirely straight. When I did my uh, disastrous uh, Edinburgh show, uh, the award winning Robin Inn, Star of the Office series, mm. one episode five first bit, which admittedly did take me about 10 days to get it right. But no one understood it because at no point did I give a little wink and go, yeah. I'm not really mental. Yeah. Even when I'm punching the melon that represent Vernon Kay's face and it explodes everywhere and I break into <laughs> Mustang Sally. But it would just go blackout and I'd disappear. And then I'd sometimes be walking through the bar afterwards and I could see people going, it's that bloody mental bloke who thinks he invented the office. Yeah. I'm going, no, it's, but 
that's just a well, that's very the problem, difficult. Isn't it? I mean, it is. It's sort of. I was thinking. You know, I think about this when Frankie Boyle got in trouble for making fun of Down syndrome people or whatever the other week. We don't really know what happened. None of us were there. I'm sure context changes everything. But there is that. You know, in the papers, it was saying that he sort of broke down and tried to explain his position. You know, and what kind of comedian he is before returning to the main thrust of it, which of course Sadovitz would never do because he's he. he Occupies the character completely, which weird. But hang on, Sadovitz has it. done that. What on stage? Yeah, I think mm. about again a long time ago, and not the same night that everyone kept doing the fuck off thing. Uh, yeah. But uh, where I think he got so annoyed when he when he first uh, probably after gobshite or something yeah. like that, and he was getting all these people attack him for what he felt were the wrong reasons. Yeah. And I think I might be wrong, but I think he did actually just he got so bored of people not. I mean, that's what I find weird about the Frankie Boyle situation is whatever I think about anything that he said, you know that you're... Surely you know you're, you're paying to see a really bad-taste comedian. That's yeah. what he does. Well, in fact, the people that complained had written on the internet about how excited they were about seeing him do even more tasteless things than he did on television, and they loved his offensive state, uh, sense of humour, and the woman said she was actually... Uh, find herself sexually aroused by arrogant, rude men and was looking forward to, you know, fancied it. So... <laughs> Bit bizarre, isn't it? That's the uh, that the Plymouth years ago when Jim Davidson uh, didn't didn't want to perform because there were disabled people in the front row, mm. people in wheelchairs, and uh, I remember seeing the woman complain and go, "Well, I've always been a very big fan of Jim Davidson, and but I, I I'm now certainly going to rethink you know what my opinion mm. on him and go." So you were somebody go, "I love it when he does all that racist <laughs> stuff," and that I didn't know he didn't like Ever? people in wheelchairs. <laughs> he was worried by them. I didn't know he didn't like me. I thought it was everyone else. <laughs> yeah. But we weren't going to talk about this anyway. Oh, well, in fact, we did need to clear something up because uh, Alan Moore was uh, a little bit worried that we were talking about Astro Dick, um, the uh, Dodgem Logic uh, extra comic uh, yeah. about the adventures of a penis who eventually accidentally blinds himself when he ejaculates in his mm. space helmet. And he felt that you kind of went, oh, Alan Moore, you've let yourself down a little bit with that. No, I didn't. I just said to him that, that I didn't say that to him at all. I thought it was good. I overheard I just, that and I tweeted it. So I just no, I just felt that it was. Um, if he's looking for another hit, global hit, like Watchmen, <laughs> like Watchmen or something, it's not going to be Astro Dick. <laughs> See, we liked it. Yeah, no, I th- listen I think, to me. I, I seen this Astro Dick and I like it. Don't get me wrong. I like it. I think it's very much though in the uh, um, you know it's a, it's definitely a one-off. It wasn't mm. unless in the sequel, the kind of like the the butterfly testicles one, where the penis manages to go back in time and strangle uh, his <laughs> strangle own um, as a yeah, strangle his own testicles uh, so that he's not blind in a later comic strip. Anyway, you've got something you want to show. Um, I can tell. Speaking of comics and cheering people up, I'm you know talking about Twitter and about how everything's too bloody hi-fi and quick I was at a zine symposium the London zine symposium uh, the other week which was really heartening and fun and brilliant and full of people who are making things and a little girl who's 13 years old came up to me and gave me her magazine uh, and she makes them herself and photocopies them and they're very sweet and I thought oh if 13 year olds are doing this and it's it's quite a complicated fold out thing yes it? it's very complicated and she was quite impressed because I could fold it and unfold it and um, we will we'll put that on the website so that people can see the uh, what's it called um, I don't know what it's called her name is Peach Melba which I doubt is her real name um, so it might be called Peach Melba Zine mm. um that's what I find quite interesting now. There does seem to be that lo-fi return. That even though you can do all these things on the internet if you wanted, yeah. that uh, in terms of the number of gigs I do, where someone gives me a comic book that they've made, and, and most of them are really good yeah. as well, which I think is a. I mean, in in I've read your 
book which comes out very soon. Uh, in fact, may well be out. Well, no, fifth of uh, August. Fifth, yeah. Well, may yeah. no, may well be out oh, when right, this right, the, right. this goes out. Uh, you you can work out you work out when this was recorded. We've travelled we'll backwards in time clues. in order to kill um, ourselves yeah. because we know what's going. But you do seem to look back quite fondly. We're we're about the same age. In fact, we're almost all the same age. And uh, by the way, not me. I'm not, like not twenty Joseph, years younger than them. No, and uh, yeah. And uh, the Josie joined when it was all really easy on the circuit, when already people like us had managed to. Uh, well, most you joined just as we were both destroyed. We were no longer creative, Listen and you went, me. "Oh, I'm so young. I'll now come and suck what's left of these people." Dry, I am paying my like dues husks. on a daily basis when people tell me that there are no funny women, and whoa, it must be weird for you, mustn't it? And I think, gosh, I used to be so happy. <laughs> do you still get? It's do I still st- get it? Of course, still I get fucking that do. Every going fucking on. day. Of my fucking life. But there's no funny oh, women. Yes. There's no funny women either. It's funny, isn't it? It's not funny being a girl. Girls always talk about strange things. I don't like women, but I like you every day of my life. <laughs> I did like, I read it, I don't know if you saw a piece by uh, uh, a stand up called Di Spencer who talked about how to deal with um, stag nights. And at one oh, yeah, point, I'm going to misquote that, yeah. this, but I just found, she said, it sounded like what I was meant to do was kind of masturbate with a tin of dog food and then open the tin and place it in my arse and then ask the leader of the stags to come up and eat it out of me. And I, yeah. just, I thought that was one of the... I only read it yesterday. Just such a beautiful, horrendous yeah. kind of John Waters pink flamingos image of yeah. expectation. Yeah, it's not what she her. does, by the way. I've never seen her act. <laughs> She's from New Zealand, I think, isn't she? I well, think that's from here, yeah. but then, then she, she went over there. Yeah. So this, there is that. I mean, I, I find it, going back to your book, where you talk about what the, what we were watching on television in the 80s, and there was this tremendous excitement uh, about... Because things did seem genuinely alternative. There was still that gap between what you liked and what your parents liked, yeah. and these kind of... The, the Things like the comic strip, to me, seemed like the most you know rebellious and incredible thing. Yeah. The was, although I also think, and I, and I, try, I try to address this in the book, that, I mean, 10 years ago, in 1999, or 97, 98, there were loads of 40-year-old blokes writing about how you could never have another 1976 with punk and it would have been the greatest thing ever. And I, and I think there's a problem of being, being in your early 40s. You, you, can conf, you can confuse the idea that when you were a teenager, really amazing things were happening culturally with just the fact that you were a teenager, therefore the world seemed more exciting and full of promise, you know. And I don't, so I don't know whether. Oh it's no, but I don't true. mean it like that. Because also yeah. when you're a teenager, you have an idea and you go, "No one else has ever thought yeah. this idea." Yeah. And then you do some more reading and you go, "Everyone thought that." Well, yeah, the problem now I is, just... how do, but they must know that instantly. I mean, it was forgivable thirty years ago for there to be three bands with the same name, but now can't you just Google it? I mean, can't you just find everything out immediately? Can't you instantly know that what you're doing has been done thousands of times, and why don't you give up? <laughs> So, the, um, the, <laughs> but that, that's why I was quite liked about the fact that, that, that Dave Gorman, that he did the Google whack, whack adventure. And I thought, well, if he'd had Google earlier on, he could have just looked up Dave Gorman's and saved all that travelling. But <laughs> yeah. he didn't. But the, uh, and I don't mean that as a slight to Dave Gorman, I'm probably now, that will be now misrepresented. Yeah, yeah, It'll yeah, be yeah. like some But no, um, I don't mean like, oh, there was this golden age, because I think now there are as many exciting things happening because comedy became more and more mainstream and then yeah. once it becomes mainstream enough you get the kind of you know the, the, the ebb and s- flow some, someone else wants to do something different and yeah. you get lots of different clubs and lots of uh, uh, weird things going on so I don't think it's any, any more of a golden age but did you find when you put together that book just going oh yeah well you kind of mentioned it really that you suddenly remembered why you became a stand up well yeah because it looked like it looked like it was 
an alternative to something, and it was called alternative comedy, and and it and a lot of the acts that I saw, people found them, you know, incomprehensible and infuriating that they had no relevance to the average person's life, and it seemed like there was a whole other thing to sort of explore. And now it's very much, you know, I mean, it is it is amazing to think that you know 25 years ago an act not unlike Michael McIntyre's you know which has a relationship with lots of things about 80s comedy you know would have been described by Jim Bowen as the alternative to comedy mm. and the idea that that could ever be popular well, I think that could ever be popular even Michael McIntyre you know, would be an anathema to, to people he just thought it was you know because there's things that he does that are a little bit quirky or a bit strange or they go on at some length or they're not necessarily jokes observations mm. about people's lives it is it is to do with what with what we came out of and yet it is the biggest thing ever yeah. the um did you bring anything by the way because we've got a minute left. well i um i i Doesn't matter if you didn't because I, no I had it i put it by the door and i left it i was going to bring in a small um rubber model of a batman right which i found in when i was clearing my stuff out which was not really Batman. It's sort of as close as to Batman as you could be without a copyright infringement, which is the sort of thing there used to be a lot of when we were kids. You know, sort mm. of knockoffs of merchandise characters. Action were, Joe Action or something. Joe, like yeah. Do you and still get that in the pound shop? Still get that in the pound shop. Yeah, you do in like um, in a sort of uh, blister packs, don't you? All mm. sealed down. And I was just, I was sort of thinking, I was just thinking about how, what, what, um, <laughs> how my son can see through it he knows it's not Batman because he's got some Batman and he knows this one isn't Batman and so it's it's got it has to be something else and it's called smelly Batman <laughs> because it's made of a really smelly rubber but also because I think it's like inferior like these knockoffs you bring me <laughs> I didn't bring it, but that's all you need to know. Well, that's what we'll, we'll, can we, we'll take a picture of the empty table mm. where Smelly Batman would. Have, and in fact, no, I think because be now Smelly Batman's a, a far more exciting vision. Whatever it is, actually, this knockoff Batman. If we saw it, we'd just go, "It's knockoff Batman." But Smelly Batman allows everyone who's <laughs> listening and bothers to look at the website to go, "What would what would have filled that space around but Stuart also, Lee's fingers?" Smelly, ba- smelly Batman would be a brilliant series, <laughs> wouldn't it? How <laughs> you keep saying it? I almost wonder whether it's worth pitching to DC Comics. It's the same as Batman. It's an Alan Moore thing. Alan Moore reinvents superheroes yet again. Before he added the idea of vigilantism, now he has the idea of aroma problems. A close something that was never dealt dealt with. It's sort of about disappointment as well. It's like you call for Batman, you get smelly Batman, he still does the job, but you're not happy. It's not the same. It's not what you wanted. Well, he'd be discovered. He'd be, you know, he'd be smelt when he approached people as well. He'd have a Batmobile with an air freshener in it. And his, um... <laughs> well, if we just had hanging off one ear, one of those little pine fragrance things, just off one of his little bat ears. His enemy is... would be the Piddler. Very nice. Oh, leave me alone. I was trying my hardest. <laughs> You've been listening to Josie Long and Robin Itz's Utter Shambles, brought to you by Comedy Central. This podcast was produced by Adrian McKinder and edited by Michael Pell. For more comedy podcasts and other things as well, visit comedycentral.co.uk.